let me just say this. Um, we're going to be talking, we're going to be, uh, we're in this series, right? Love your neighbor. We're talking about how to love our neighbors well. Last week we talked about like loving our literal neighbors, the people who live right next door and right across the street. Today we're going to be talking about um, what it means to love those who are maybe a little further removed from us, a little not quite as close to us, maybe further away either geographically or otherwise. And we're going to key off of something Jesus said right at the end of his time here on earth. He'd lived his life, right? And he'd done his ministry. He'd done his work on the cross. He'd been laid in the tomb. He'd been raised from the dead. He spent some more time with his disciples and he was just getting ready to ascend back to the Father in heaven. And he had these final words to motivate and to direct his disciples. And I had this great story to tell you where uh, one of the greatest coaches of my favorite football team gave the greatest halftime speech ever. And based on the last thing he said to his guys on the way out of the tunnel, it made this huge difference and this great impact, right? And then last night my team lost in the most humiliating fashion. I mean, horrible. And it just broke my heart. And not only can I not tell the story, I don't even think I can preach that message today. So now that the offering's been received, let's pray and go home. No, that's not what's happening. Go Bears. <laughs> Prayer team will be available. <laughs> the last things that people say matter, and they stick with us, right? And these are the words of Jesus, the last things he was saying to his disciples. Acts chapter 1. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus makes this really bold statement. He says, I'm not going to be with you anymore. And because I'm not, the Holy Spirit's able to come. And he is going to empower you. And because of his power in you, you're going to be able to do what I have called you to do. You're going to be able to fulfill your kingdom assignment, which is to start where you are and gradually move outward to more distant places as my witnesses, as people who are able to talk about what it is that you've seen and what it is that Jesus has done and to make that impact that way. He did not say, notably, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to have really good discipleship programs and have really great potlucks with people who are already your friends and draw very close to them and to be comfortable. I would have loved it if that would have been the charge. I'm all in. And that is a part of what it means to be life in a church, life in community, doing life together with one another in healthy and growing relationships. That's absolutely part of it, but that's not the end game. Jesus says that the end game for that is to move from that place of closeness and people who are like you and people that you already know to people who are a little further out and then further out beyond that and then further out beyond that as well. There are these kind of expanding circles of familiarity. Je Jerusalem was right there where they were. Je Judea was the general area. Call it the county that they were a part of. Samaria was kind of out there and beginning to be very different. People who were different ethnically, different religiously, right? Different with a set of values, and they were different. And then the, the ends of the earth, that's everybody else who's nothing like me at all. And he says that the call of Jesus to his disciples is, is to move outward towards those that are less and less like you. To, that we're called to move from people who are most like me out towards people who are least like me. We're called to move from people whom I already understand to people whom it's really difficult for me to understand. From people that I'm just naturally very comfortable with 
to not stay there in the midst of all that comfort, but to move outward, even to reach and address and to touch and to talk about Jesus with the people who make me, or for the people who make me uncomfortable, from people I trust out towards people that I'm naturally suspicious of, from people who see things my way and agree with me. I love those people, but Jesus calls me to step out and even engage for gospel purposes people who disagree with me rather dramatically, generally to move from we and us, right, to they and them with a heart towards redemption, with a heart of love, and with a heart of care. And in this, Jesus instructs his disciples. He instructs his disciples then, and he instructs his disciples now to move, to move toward and to be for those who are least like them, right? That's our call, to move towards people who are least like us, to make movement towards them, towards being near them, towards communicating with them, towards being in their life. And in addition to moving towards them, to be for them, to want the best for them, to want to see them prosper and to do well and to grow into a wonderful relationship with God. And what's interesting to me is this, is that the author of the book of Acts, against this statement of go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the earth, he builds his whole book of Acts around that model. Chapters 1 through 7 in Acts are all about what happens in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, what was happening in Jerusalem starts trickling out into Judea and in Samaria. And there are tales of different things that happen in, in, in those places as well. Then Acts chapter 9 happens. We hear about uh, Saul becoming converted, becoming uh, Paul. And then Paul goes on. He's the one who's his motive force to take the gospel, the good news about Jesus, all around the Roman Empire. And we see, and that's the rest of the book of Acts, and we see in the book of Acts itself that it appears to be that the disciples are doing exactly what Jesus asked them to do with the power of the Holy Spirit that he gave them. But on closer examination, we find something that's a little surprising and a little bit troubling. Because what we find is this. Well, we can ask the question, what was it that compelled that outward motion of the disciples, that motion out towards the world. I would like to think that they just heard the words of Jesus right before we left, and they said, cool, Jesus has said it, and so I'm doing it, and off they went. Turns out when we look, that's not what we find. In chapter 7 of Acts, we learn about the story of Stephen, one of the early disciples, one of the early leaders. And uh, in chapter 7 of Acts, he's put to death for his faith. The religious leaders bring him in. They don't like that he's talking about Jesus. They feel like he's speaking against Judaism. And uh, he gets in trouble. They accuse him of all kinds of stuff. And they get so angry that they pick up stones and they keep throwing them at him until he dies. The first Christian martyr. And that hadn't happened yet. Up until that point, the Christian community there in Jerusalem was pretty content to hang out and enjoy being the Christian community in Jerusalem. But then on that very day, we find this then in Acts 8, verse 1. On that very day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And everyone except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What did it take for the disciples to step up and do what Jesus had called them to do? It took persecution. It took death. It took loss. It took suffering. They had the words of Jesus right before he ascended. They knew what they were supposed to do, but it was so comfortable at home in Jerusalem. And then the persecution happened, and then they went. 
It's surprising, perhaps, that they didn't just act on his words initially. It's troubling because it brings about the question that we have to ask of, itself, ask of ourselves. What will it take for us to fulfill those words of Jesus in the same way, right? It compels us to ask the question, am I going to embody the way that Jesus loved the world? Am I going to embody his call to move from what's comfortable into what's uncomfortable, to move from what's known out into what's unknown, from familiar to unfamiliar? Am, am I going to follow Jesus in embodying that call? Or am I just going to wait until it gets so difficult, so painful, and I become so persecuted and desperate right where I am that I don't have any choices? Jesus calls us. I mean, I think the book of Acts shows he's willing to provide some persecution and some motive force if we can't get it going on our own. But what he calls us to do is to follow his own example in moving towards and being for those who maybe are a little further out and whom we don't know as well and who aren't as much like us. They maybe aren't like us geographically. They're just not near to us geographically. But it may not be that. It may, I mean, some people are just different culturally. I grew up in one culture. They grew up in a different culture, in a different place, or just in a different family arrangement. And because of that, we're so different, and we don't see the world the same, and they just feel different. Sometimes those differences are racial. Sometimes they're socioeconomic. Sometimes they're political. I, I'm on this side of the spectrum. They're on that side of the spectrum. And they're just so far away that I'd rather stay with the people who are like-minded, whose experience is like mine, who understand me culturally, and who are kind of a part of my tribe that way. But Jesus says, that's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to move past, to move towards those with whom you have differences. And then the question is, well, what will I do about that? What does it look like to love not just our Jerusalem, but our Judea and our Samaria and our ends of the earth? It looks like taking active, intentional, redemptive steps to connect with people, to know people, and to, and to love them in very practical, tangible ways. It also means being willing to put up with the kind of blowback we're going to get when we do that. Have you ever been part of a group that was like really like-minded and really tight-knit and you really got along together and it was super comfortable? It was like, this is us. We're together. This is awesome. And then what happens when somebody in that group goes, hey, there's some people out there I want to reach out to. There's some people, they're, they're not like us. They're different than us. They live in a different place. They think different things. They believe different things. They act different ways. But I just want to, give, give me a moment. I want to go reach out to them. What happens? Are you breaking up with us? Are you leaving us? What are you doing? They're not us. We're us. Come back here. I promise you that if you hear the words of Jesus today, and you do take active, intentional steps from those who are different than you, there will be blowback from those who are very much like you. I want you to be prepared for it. I don't want you to be surprised by it, but I don't want you to keep you from taking the steps that Jesus calls you to take. Ultimately, do you answer to them, or do you answer to him? Which is another way of answering the question, did they die on the cross for you, or did he, right? That's tough. Following Jesus sometimes comes with a price, and sometimes the price will be the disapproval of people who are very close to you. I encourage us to step past that discomfort and do whatever it takes to say yes to what it is God's calling us to do. I want to give you a picture, perhaps, of what that might look like in the ministry of Jesus from John chapter 4. It's the story of Jesus encountering a Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of the day. And he Coming to town, he'd been doing ministry. He's up in this area, the Samaritans. He's outside of Jerusalem, he's outside of Judea. He's out in this other place, culturally different, 
ethnically different, religiously different, with every reason to have nothing to do with anybody that he runs across. And this is what we see, that when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? He took the first step. He initiated a conversation. Will you give me a drink? His disciples, uh, John points out, had gone to the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. See, she recognized we're different. We're different geographically. We're different ethnically. We're different religiously. We're different in all these different ways that, that people have said means that we shouldn't have anything to do with each other. How is this happening? It's unusual in her experience that anyone with those boundaries would step across them and make a move towards her. And given her past and given her lifestyle, she also had every reason to believe that whoever this was stepping towards her would certainly not be for her and want the best for her. But Jesus did the opposite of what she anticipated. He stepped into her life. He initiated a conversation. They got to talking about her life. They got to talking about God and the nature of worship and how that all works out. And along the way, he was able to let her know that he was the Messiah that the scriptures had predicted. And she came to believe him because of what she saw in him. And then the disciples come back from being off buying food. It says that the disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? See, they realized Jesus had crossed a cultural boundary. He'd crossed, some, he'd crossed a boundary and stepped into the dreaded socially inappropriate. He was talking to, of all things, a woman. And that wasn't okay. The disciples were not particularly progressive. They lived in a culture that they didn't just not value women, they devalued women. It actually sounds, it sounds like the disciples were a little bit misogynist. You know why it sounds like that? Because they kind of were. They were part of a culture that was. They were part of a culture that really, I mean, the, in the, from the Jewish background in particular, they look back to the creation of Adam and Eve, right? And then Adam and Eve sin, and into the world comes sin, and then God describes, hey, you've brought sin into the world. This is what it's going to look like. And what he describes is that men in particular, because they, are particu because they are physically advantaged, because of sin in the world, will exploit that advantage at every opportunity that they get. The, the entry of sin into the world meant that those who have the ability to exploit will and those who have a tougher time looking out for themselves will end up being exploited. And the predicament of women at this point, at that stage in history, was exactly that. The story of sin destroying gender relationships. But Jesus came to redeem and Jesus came to make all of that right and to reverse that trend and to say, it's okay in God's economy for a man to step across the line and talk to a woman as a person and as an equal and as someone with equal value in God's eyes. And he begin, began the process of bringing an understanding of equality and value that way. And we're not done yet. We've got a long ways to go. But that, a lot of that started with Jesus' willingness to step, step across a line and say, look, whatever others might think, whatever the prevailing view about the role of women in society may be, I'm going to step across the line of those expectations. I'm going to move towards you. 
And I'm going to be on your side and I'm going to be for you. And I'm going to speak to you and share a conversation as equals. It was very empowering that way. And Jesus was unafraid to do it. But the disciples are like, whoa, I don't think he's supposed to do that. They weren't courageous enough to call him on it. Because, you know, calling on the Son of God for what he's doing wrong, that's a little iffy. But they recognized that he had crossed a line. The woman, having spent time with Jesus, goes back home. She tells all of her people about Jesus. And then John 4.30 says this, And then they came out of the town, and they made their way towards him. Like, isn't that what we want? Don't we want to feel like we want to see people who are far from God making their way towards God, don't we? Isn't that what we're called to help facilitate? How did it happen for Jesus? He initiated a move towards people, and there's a natural response where then they come back to him. We've got to learn that lesson. We, our presentation of the gospel and of Jesus Christ can't be just from standing where we are and saying, hey, come here. If we're going to follow Jesus' example, we have to move towards people to demonstrate that we are for them and on their side. And then we'll see, as Jesus did, that there's this movement back towards encountering God that way. John continues the story. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many became believers. Again, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't hang out. Their kids didn't have playdates. They didn't do sleepovers. You didn't go do two days with the Samaritans, but Jesus did. He doubled down on his commitment to them and his commitment to their value and his commitment to love the woman at the well and the whole town as well. It's a great mindset. It's the Jesus mindset. It says it's not enough to be here and love from a distance. Love means moving towards and demonstrating that you are for those who are not very much like you. I want to like contrast the Jesus mindset with the Jonah mindset, right? You remember Jonah in the Old Testament, the prophet? God says there's a nasty, evil town, Nineveh. I want you to go tell them that I'm calling them out, and if they don't repent, uh, I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah says, those are bad people who, are, who will hurt me for saying things like that, so I'm going to run the other way. And he ran until God caught up with him, and, uh, and God, swallow, or God had a fish rise up, the whale swallows Jonah, comes back, spits him up on the beach, and Jonah goes, okay, Nineveh's bad, the fish is worse, I'll go do what you say, and he heads off to Nineveh. And he starts telling these evil Ninevites that God's getting ready to destroy them for all of their wickedness, right? And then the strangest things happen. The Ninevites listen to the guy who stinks of dead fish. And they repent. And they say, you know, they realize we're turning to God because we realize that, that he loves us and that he's offering forgiveness and that all can be okay. And this is when the story gets really good. Jonah, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, the Ninevites, he relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Which should be great, right? That's what the whole thing's about. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Side note, when what God is doing seems very wrong and you are angry, you are on the wrong side of this story. Okay, take note. 
He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall fleeing to, by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew this was going to happen. The whole reason I didn't want to go there was because I knew that you'd love these people. I knew that you'd forgive these people, and I'm not for them. I didn't go to them because I wanted to see them redeemed and saved and turned to you. The only reason I went was so I could get a front row seat to the fire and brimstone that was going to happen. And with a tantrum that would later inspire generations of toddlers. Amen. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Bit of a diva, that Jonah. Right? He's just not having any of it. He had no inclination to see these people that were different from them move towards God. He just wanted to see them destroyed. And when God wouldn't come through on that, he got angry. That is the exact opposite of the Jesus mindset. So most of us, I would imagine, if we said, well, where am I in that? We would probably say, well, I'm probably not as good as, as Jesus was at moving towards people and demonstrating that I'm for them. I'm probably not that good. But like, I'm probably not as bad as Jonah. I'm probably not really wanting to be to just see him destroyed and stuff like that. I'm probably, all things considered, somewhere in the middle, right? Which is a dangerous place to be. Because there's this thing that happens when we're not as good as Jesus, but not as bad as Jonah, where we feel like, I'm okay here. And there's a passive bigotry and a passive prejudice that happens when we allow ourselves to be content. I'm not actively seeking out negative things for people who are different from me. I'm not against them. I'm not wishing them harm. I'm not fighting against them. I'm not barring the way. I'm not doing any of those things. And I feel like that's a safe place to be because I'm not doing that. But the call of Jesus is not to just be passively not doing things. The call of Jesus is to be actively stepping towards those who are different. To be actively moving towards those who see things differently, live different ways, are just flat out different in so many ways. We, uh, as followers of Jesus, can't participate in that kind of passive bigotry. So what might this look like in a real-world example? I can't imagine anybody more different than, than me, than an immigrant or a refugee fleeing their homeland and joining a group of other travelers in a caravan intending to travel thousands of miles to the border of a foreign country in the hopes of a life that's better. There are a group of people involved in that, and I will simply confess, they're very different from me. And this passage compels me to ask the question, what am I going to do about that? What does it look like for me to love those neighbors that are so unlike me? Not just to tell them what Jesus has done, but to demonstrate that in some practical way. And I get it. Please, I get it. Immigration is an incredibly complex issue. There are things to be said on both sides to be sure, and, and all sides to be sure, and there are no easy solutions. I do understand that. I'm not here this morning to tell you where you ought to land on an issue like immigration. 
I am here this morning to tell you where as a follower of Jesus, you ought to begin on the issue of immigration and all other like issues. As a follower of Jesus, you are to begin with the command to move towards and to be for those who are not like you. Now that may play itself out in different ways. It may lead you to different conclusions, and I understand that. But as a starting point, follower of Jesus, we need to do a gut check that says, is where I land connected to where I'm supposed to start, which is loving people, moving towards them, and being for them. And Christian, if you cannot draw a straight, direct line from loving people, moving for them, and being, uh, and moving towards them and being for them, if you can't draw a straight line from there to wherever it is that you land on that issue or any other issue, you have a problem. And it's not a political problem or a social issues problem or a social justice problem. It's an integrity problem. Because the Jesus whose name you bear as a Christian, the Jesus whom you follow, embodied in his life a movement towards and being for those who are very, very different. That's your starting point. Let that take you wherever it goes. But I challenge you to make sure there's a straight line from there to wherever it is you land on this issue or any one like it. And we can't hide behind the passive bigotry of saying, well, I'm not doing anything bad, I'm not doing anything harmful. We gotta do a gut check. We gotta say, is my passive inactivity just a refusal to do what Jesus has asked me to do, to step towards people, to be for them, to demonstrate his love for them? And I am the first to admit for myself, and I admit this to my own shame and as, a, as an expression of my own shortcoming, that I don't yet know exactly what that looks like for me or how to live that out, or how to play that out in practical terms and in real life. But I know this, where it starts, is it starts with repentance. Not, repent, not repentance for being like wrong on an issue like immigration, but for not following Jesus' lead and caring enough about people that Jesus loves to move towards them to figure out what being right would even look like. I'm not there, and that's on me. And so I need to begin with repenting on that. And then beyond repenting, I need to continue in prayer. I need to say, Jesus, lead me and guide me. I know that moving towards people um, and being for them and wanting the best for them and loving them is what you call me to do. Jesus, give me first steps. Give me next steps. Give me a vision for what, what that looks like. Give me courage to take those steps once you, once you enlighten me on them. God, will you direct my thinking and my believing? Will you direct my acting so that all of what I'm doing reflects your heart for people everywhere, regardless of whatever that backlash might be. And speaking of backlash, I understand that issues like immigration and issues like this particular caravan are potentially divisive issues and that they can generate some heat and that some of the things I've said this morning may rub you the wrong way. And honestly, if you take exception to what I've said or maybe how I've said it, I want to invite you to reach out to me and, and let me know. You can reach me at mikemead at northchurch.net <laughs> and just really let me have it. The studies will tell you that as a group of people sit and listen to someone, that they tend to actually hear through the grid of what they already think, believe, or expect. So that almost regardless of, what, of the words that I speak up here, you will tend to hear me kind of through the grid of your own experience and perspective. Which means that right now, roughly a third of you think I am totally pro-caravan. Roughly a third of you think I am totally pro-strong borders. 
and roughly a third of you either don't care or think I don't know anything about what I'm talking about. And I simply want to say, to clear the record, I'm with a third of you. <laughs> that caravan's a long way away. We're up here in the north where it's dark early and dark late and dark everywhere in between. Can I talk about an example that's maybe more likely to affect us directly than immigrants thousands of miles away? What about the unmarried couple that's moving in together at the house two doors down and living out an example of how life works that's not the picture that you had for your kids to grow up in? Maybe the same-sex couple that moves in across the street. And again, that's just not the picture you had for the neighborhood dynamic that you wanted. What does it look like to follow Jesus' example and his teaching that to love people who are maybe very different, who, have a different, who are living out a different value set and are making different life choices, what does it look like to move towards them and to be for them? To, to refuse to hide behind a veil of passive inactivity that's really just a passive bigotry and prejudice, but to say no. Setting aside whatever judgmentalism may or may not be in my heart, I'm going to, as an expression of God's love, move towards them. I'm going to initiate conversation with them. I'm going to engage them as people and as equals and speak to them and get to know them and hear their story, be a part of their life. That's what it means to follow the example that Jesus gave. That what, that's what it means there. And then you can take that example and you take it wherever your life is. May, you, know, you don't have to necessarily go to the deepest parts of the world. There may, pe may be people in your own family who are so different from you at every level that taking a single step towards them and giving indi any indication that you're in any way for them might be really uncomfortable for you. Say maybe to at work or in the neighborhood or wherever. But I just want to put the challenge to you. Who do you serve? Do you serve your own comfort or do you serve the God who calls you to make a move towards people and to demonstrate that you're for them and to love them in Jesus' name because that's who he's calling us to be? I want to challenge you to do more than think about that. I want to challenge you to answer that this week. Let's pray. God, we would begin by repenting. Whatever it is, God, that has made us slow to move towards others who are different than us, whatever insecurities that may reflect in us, whatever pride that may be flowing from in us, God, we repent of that. And we ask, God, that you would build up within us this Love that cannot help but express itself by moving towards people and initiating relationship and being for and wanting the best for them. God, would you show us how to do that? God, would you give all of us wisdom to kind of take that as a starting point and then figure out what it means in practical steps? It's different for each one of us, but all of us look to you and say, God, would you make that clear? We want to live for you. We want to represent you. God, we want to follow Jesus' example of stepping out towards those who are most different than us and most in need and loving them the way Jesus did when he was here. God, would you just 
change us into the people who do that and open our eyes to the opportunities that are there for us every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Thank you, Scott. Uh, I just want to invite you all next week. We're going to end our series, Love Your Neighbor, with our senior pastor, Mike Mead, giving us a message. Also, uh, if you would like some prayer after the service, we have a prayer team that would love to agree with you in prayer just right over here underneath this monitor. And if you'd like to get connected more here at North Church, I'd love to meet with you right over here at First Connect after the service. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you stay warm.